Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome back to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, Jamie Hopkins. Jamie, welcome to the show. Alan, thanks for the warm welcome. And I'm glad to be here. I know that you put a lot of prep time into this one, so I know that you feel ready to go. That's the world, right? The more you prep, the better you are. That's it, man. <laughs> but I mean, I didn't even give like the long introduction, how we met, any of that. Jamie Hopkins, everybody, he's here and we're ready to. I've been looking forward to this, though. And, and the reason being is just because we've always, every time we've talked, we just always hit it off. We just always have great conversations. We talk about conversations could go anywhere. And why not do that on air? Like, you know what I mean? So like, like, I was like, we were talking right before the show started, and I'm just real candid with the audience that listens. The minority money community is pretty receptive, pretty open, but just wanted to have Jamie on and just kind of talk a little bit. So before we even get into anything, for the people that don't know who you are, just tell a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, we'll start with the important things first. So I'm a father of three. And also my dog, Baxter, which sometimes he'll come in in the middle of recording. So that's always a possibility. And then a husband to my wonderful wife, Kathy, who we only have one printer in the house and it is above me. And so sometimes stuff gets printed too in the middle. And those are all things that happen from working from home now. But I live outside of Philly. Love it here. You know, I don't cheer for the Philly sports teams, but everything else about Philly, I pretty much love. And I... (laughs) work for a company called Carson Group that's based out of Omaha, Nebraska, founded by Ron Carson back in the 1980s. And I love retirement planning, the, 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 that aspect of the financial planning world, but do a lot of things now. I honestly don't know. <laughs> I really don't know anymore what I do. I, I've got a bunch of titles, but I think more now, somebody said to me recently, which was a great compliment, like, oh, you're a great boss. And then somebody else that also reports up to me said, well, he's not really a boss. He's more of an advocate for us. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's a good way to go about things. And I think broader in the industry, I view myself as an advocate for planning and an advocate for advisors. So if I can stay in that world, I think that's a good place to be. Absolutely. I would agree with that. I'd say you're definitely an advocate for advisors, definitely a big advocate for planning. And man, just a great guy all around. You know what I mean? I think that as I've gotten to know you, it's been nice, man. It's been real nice. And so to hear employees or people that work with you say nice things about you, there's nothing better than that, right? Because they really know you. They see you all the time. So that's the good stuff. Yeah. Um, they, they know how difficult it can be to work with me. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Like, like we just do a podcast, just turn our wives loose, let them on the podcast and say, hey, let's talk about Jamie and him. Tell them what's really going on. And they probably get the best podcast ever, right? Um <laughs> You know what, man, we went to Carson. We were actually talking about this on the last podcast. We went to Excel this year and we actually got to meet in real life. Like I actually got to shake your hand, have a drink with you, hang out and talk for a few days. And it was absolutely wonderful, man. You guys did a great job. And it was just so nice to see people. It was so nice to see, like, you forget how much you miss seeing people. Just like, man, give me a hug, handshake. And just, so it was awesome. Yeah. And you can't replicate that. It's something that, you know, in the last year and a half, I've had very mixed feelings on this, right? The world shut down. And I was in Denver coming back from an event. And actually, I was in Denver, an event got canceled. I did one there, one got canceled on March 13th, flew home. 
And, you know, the whole world was shutting down that day, right? Like all the sports stuff was getting canceled. Players were on courts and getting pulled off. And I kept thinking, I was a little bit more pessimistic than a lot of people. People actually called me Dr. Doom right then because I thought we would be shut down for a while. But I was thinking like August, right? And like, (laughs) I don't know how, but I know all this is going to be over by August. So I still had plans for events and things. And then it was out until about October of 2020. And I was talking to Dr. Wade Fallon. He's like, you know, I'm done for the year and I'm probably done for next year traveling too. My wife and I talked about it. And I was like, wow, really? And at that point, I realized, you know, I don't know that I want to go back to all the events and the conferences and the speaking. And I have shifted personally that. But then stuff opened up a little bit this summer into the fall. A couple of conferences ran, not a bunch, right? It was a tough decision honestly, to run Excel, right? You had people on both sides. I think we made the right decision, but it's not an easy one. A lot of people canceled, a couple of people ran. We're actually, I mean, definitely in a minority of conferences, right? And most conferences shut down for this year. But I think it was the right call. And when the conferences I did go to, what I realized, it's a lot better. Virtual conferences suck. (laughs) Even the best run one, they're not the same. You don't get the energy. Like I don't sit in too many sessions. I sat in your session. I think you were the only session I sat through. I was emceeing a lot, but I sat through yours. But like the energy that you can exhibit to people in a room like that is mm-hmm. completely different than any great presentation you can do online. It's just yeah. not the same. You've got people clapping and applauding and hollering back at you when you're mm-hmm. presenting up there. Yeah. You can't do that anywhere else. It's just different. Now, there's a lot of great things from being virtual too, but that being around people and the conversations in the hallways, right? Conferences really have two, right? There's the one on the stage and the one in the hallways. And that stuff, yeah, I've missed it. And I didn't realize how much I missed it and how valuable those are until I got back again. And I think Excel went well, but my experience with Excel is like completely different than anybody else's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I lost, what did I lose? 11 pounds that week in Vegas. It's just literally craziness. So um, I've gained it all back since, but I only ate one meal every day. I was there for seven days. So that hurts. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, you look kind of exhausted. You look like you're putting on a conference, but like, yeah, like I said, I mean, I think it's, it was needed. I think you guys did make the right decision. I think most people that went, at least the ones I talked to absolutely loved it. And this is the crazy thing. I don't like going to conference. <laughs> don't repeat that. <laughs> like, but I, but I don't, I'm not a conference person. Like I've go to one conference a year, maybe if I go. And then the other thing is people don't know this, but I hate being in large groups of people. Mm. Yeah. People don't know. I don't like being in large groups of people. I like to be off to the side. It's kind of weird. Like, I, I think I'm an introvert somewhere in here, just hiding in an extrovert's body, I think. And then maybe that's <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the uh, interesting thing about that, what part of it don't you like about large groups? Okay. So like when I first got into the industry, like the whole mixer thing, you got to go mm-hmm. to mixers, you got to go talk to people. And then I worked at Jones, so I've knocked on doors. I've went to mixers. I've done all that. And I just, so when, anytime I'm in a group of people and they're like the cards come out and people are like, oh, here, I'm like, I, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And conferences, like I said, are big for that, good for that. But I'm not going to go get 27 cards. I'm going to go get two people's phone numbers that I'm going to talk to later and make sure that I connect with them. And so that's always been kind of my thing. And some of the podcast guests I've had on the show were people that I met at the conference that I just came back and said, hey, let's get on. And so I'm just more of that kind of thing. I don't like the, the marketing aspect of it. Maybe that's what it is. I like the personal connection. And I don't know if I can connect with 27 business cards that I picked up. Yeah, I need, I'm kind of a similar thing. I actually don't love large crowds. 
I hate, and I have to do it, and I've probably gotten better at it, but, you know, I hate having to work a room in that sense, right? Walk and find reasons to talk to people and introduce yourself. I hate wearing name tags, one of my least favorite things in the history of the world. And so I pretty much, if you see me at a conference, I'm likely not wearing the name tag and everyone else is, and people are asking me where my name tag is, and I'm like, I don't like wearing them. I feel weird, like, putting my name on myself, Mm -hmm. so, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but... It's a big thing. And I remember I've seen a couple of people though that like I've watched them. It's a skill set that I wish I probably did have and I wish I enjoyed. But every once in a while you see that person that's like amazing at like working the room and clearly mm-hmm. likes it. Mm-hmm. And I'm always jealous of that person because I'm like, I have to go to these things. I do go to them. But I wish I liked that part of it. And I mm-hmm. hate it though, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm similar. I'd rather be over in the back far corner with two people I like mm-hmm. and that's basically it. And I don't mm-hmm. really want to talk to everybody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and it's not because I don't like talking to people because if you get me in like, like, you know, I love talking to people, but I don't like yeah. the big group. I guess just, I don't know. I just don't, I like the intimacy of the close conversation. That's what it is. Like having people that you can talk to and really engage with and, and find out about them. So I'm all about people. So that's probably why I'm not a big crowd person. I like individual. You like the authenticity of the conversation. And when you get in those larger conversations, it's a lot of you know, it's not that people are being fake, but it's a very surface level conversation, right? Like you can only get so deep with four people and they're all handing out business cards. And that's that small talk terminology. That's not fun or enjoyable to me either, right? I just don't like it. And I try to ask different questions now if I'm forced into it. So sometimes I'll ask groups like, what's something that you gave up on too early? And it's something everyone will talk about. But I think that's part of it is we just have to ask better questions than if you and I are going to be forced into those situations. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, right? You got to do it. And, I, and you know the funny thing? Like, I know we're sitting here and we're just saying this and we just kind of start talking about this randomly. But why do I feel like people are going to be like, you know what? I hate that too. Like, oh, we're going to hit, we're going to get, like, I'm like, I'm, <laughs> yeah. like, I'm going to post this on Twitter and people are going to be like, oh my God. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, I feel the same way. I don't know how you guys, yeah, I feel the same way. As you think about, like thinking about planning, because you said, you know, you called yourself an advocate for planning, which I agree with. What are some of the things that you would say excite you the most about the future of financial planning? Yeah, I had an interesting conversation today. And it's often when I get asked about stuff, I, you know, go to my recency bias, which is this. And I think about what happened today. So I had a really interesting conversation today. And somebody talked about going to the dentist, right? And how normal that is here in the United States now, right? If you have a job with an employer, you probably have dental insurance. And part of that, you go to your one or two annual checkups a year. And that's just normal. And it's been this really interesting phenomenon that like the US has like amazing dental health, right? And it's really good for long-term health. And there's a lot of research that talks about the value of the dental insurance and how that gets people to go to the dentist. Whether or not you actually like the underlying insurance product, behaviorally, it's had this amazing health impact on kids and grownups, and it's really cool. And part of it was like, okay, so how do we get that behavioral change to planning? Because we don't have that, right? You get dental insurance, you go to your job, and you go get your two dental checkups a year, and it keeps our health and our wellness improved. Great. But we go to our job, we don't engage in financial planning early on. A lot of people have shame about their finances because they came from an area of scarcity. I do believe that some of the business model changes are beneficial to that too, right? When we get closer to something like, well, maybe dental insurance isn't the best insurance ever, but it's kind of like prepaying your costs in an easy and affordable way, and it improves behavior. So how can we get some of the financial planning world to get closer to that? And then I'd love to see more firms 
continue to offer that as an employee benefit. And that's something that to me actually is very exciting because I 100% believe that technology and this term democratization of wealth or planning can come from the scale that technology can bring us. We're going to have fewer advisors next year than we had this year. We've had fewer advisors now for like 27 years or something in a row than we had the previous year. Fortunately or unfortunately, that trend is not changing in the short term. So we're going to have less advisors next year to take care of more people with more wealth and more problems and complexity than ever before. But technology is allowing us to serve more people with fewer advisors than we ever have before. And that part to me is appealing. And technology that's actually built (laughs) kind of from the ground up doesn't have a lot of inherent biases in it. So it doesn't care, like going back to the name of your show and your mission, right? Like a software system, Excel, Money Guide Pro doesn't care what ethnicity you are. It doesn't Mm -hmm. care about your religious beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't care, you know, if you're vegan or you are carnivore, right? Like it'll, it'll do planning for you either way. So some of the traditional systems that were really built for people already with wealth, technology doesn't care as much about that. Now, that's not to say biases aren't then eventually put into technology. Like, absolutely, they are. But the underlying tech doesn't actually care. And that, to me, is a very interesting thing. And it's across demographics that it can be scaled at a level that we haven't seen before. And that gets me very exciting. And I tell people, young people, when they're looking at this as a profession, honestly, I don't think there's ever been a better time ever to get into financial planning because of those reasons. Like that's a risk for the industry that we don't have enough good people coming into the profession. But if you are one of those people, that's awesome, right? You Mm -hmm. have less people that you're competing with than you did before. There's more people who need planning than ever before. That's a really good place to be. You know, I think that when you say it that way, it's like it is an incredible place to be. And we know, you know, all the numbers tell us, the statistics tell us how many, you know, we know we're growing in size in the advisor workforce. And also that means that they're shrinking the pool of advisors that they have to transfer these assets to. And so the word is out on the succession plans. So you just can't tell a young advisor that you're going to have a succession plan for 25 years and just think they're going to stay there. But at the same time, now with technology in the financial planning, in the financial services industry, like technology has a really, really large part in everything that we'll do going forward. And I think that as you continue to see that relationship between technology and planning, I think you're going to see, like you said, more opportunities for people to come in that have those skill sets that can really do some things, you know, and I, I'm ex- it's exciting, you know, and as you're talking about how software is made, I think the biases will be more so in the people that are using the software than it is in the people that created it. And I think that as we get more people from different backgrounds using the software, we'll see how the software will have to adapt, right? Like it's just going to change. And I think the software developers have to change as well, right? Because we have to make subtle changes. I don't think there's major changes that need to be made, but I think there's just some subtle things like some cultural planning that could be placed in there, like someone celebrating a certain holiday and it does cost money, whether it's Kwanzaa, whether it's Hanukkah, whether it's a quinceanera, whatever it is, putting those little things in there and having them there and almost saying, hey, you know what? I think that's a great way to be inclusive. You want us to make a software inclusive then include some of that stuff in there like as one of the drop downs. That's something that you got to type in. Like the day that we have that, you know, like quinceanera or whatever other holiday. I just, that's the one that pops into my head. My daughter just turned 16. So that's why it just pops <laughs> in my head. But, and I know quinceanera is for 15, not 16, but it just, she just had a birthday. So it popped in. 
I don't know. I think that that's going to make a big difference. As you're going through here, what are some of the things that have impressed you with advisors? Like, I know you got to meet a lot of new advisors. You work with a lot of young advisors. What are some of the things that you are seeing from the, the younger advisors that really get you excited? I'll say a couple of things about advisors in general, which is, you know, I've, I've been working more with advisors than what I'd say is end consumers of advisors in my career so far. So yeah, more so on the education front. I mean, I spent seven years as a professor in a consulting firm working with advisors. And one thing that I found about advisors was I think on in mass, advisors probably have a worse reputation than they deserve. Most advisors that I run into want to help clients and want to do what they perceive to be the right thing. I don't believe that there's a lot of true bad actors out there. I think generally speaking, advisors care a lot. And I remember there was a John Oliver bit, and this is a while ago now, and this might be 14 or 15, where the John Oliver, he has those bits that he does on his show, and he did one around financial services. And I used to tell advisors to go watch it because I actually thought John Oliver got a bunch of stuff wrong in it. (laughs) But what the show does a great job on in those bits is kind of giving you the world's impression of you. It's not whether or not it's super accurate. It's that's how people perceive you in a comical way, but it is how they perceive you. And they kind of perceive advisors as, you know, salespeople with a lot of conflicts and that can you really trust them? And unfortunately, We have to live in a trust world. Like what we're doing, most of the value is done outside of somebody's view. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I give this example, like it's the total, like I like Chick-fil-A from the food side, whether or not you can get in the conversation about the company and if I agree with everything there, but I do really love Chick-fil-A food and I'm very open about that. I love Chick-fil-A. Me too, love it. I'm a huge fan of the food. I don't feel bad after eating it. So I eat a lot of (laughs) Chick-fil-A, especially when I travel. Airports have Chick-fil-A's and I like it better than McDonald's and airports. So when I'm picking between the two, but when I go to Chick-fil-A or any restaurant, if my food is bad, right? Like one, I pay for something, I order it, I see it immediately, I taste it immediately. And if something is wrong, I get to just walk up and say, you know what? Hey, I got the wrong sandwich and, you know, or the bread was moldy or whatever the issue was. And I essentially can like rectify that issue almost myself and immediately because the results are right here in front of me. The advisory world is so different than that, that a lot of the really important aspects of my planning kind of occurs outside of my view. It also may or may not be clearly identifiable whether I've been harmed in any way, right? Like if you pick a bunch of bad stocks for me and that's my relationship with you, but the whole market goes up. And so I go in, all my stuff is still up. It's just not where everything else is. I might not realize that I was harmed in any way, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just, yeah. I'm up less than other people, but I'm still up. So I'm like, it's okay. Or I die. And a lot of the good planning is occurring after I'm gone and I can't walk in and fix it. So mm-hmm. it's kind of implicitly a trust relationship, right? Like I have to trust that when I die, that you're going to pay out to my beneficiaries and you're going to take care of my spouse and my kids. And those are the single most important things in my own personal life and why I have an advisor. It's all about what comes when I'm not here. Because people are sometimes are surprised when I tell people I have an advisor. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, because mine is all my contingency plan. I do think some of it's your blind spots. You can't see them. It's just impossible. But to me, you have to trust the person. And I think most advisors are trustworthy, but it's not the perception that we exude out there. 
I think getting more transparent about what we do, getting better at our value propositions, and being more transparent about our compensation models are important. And then you ask very long-winded question, younger advisors. Younger advisors seem more okay with all of those things than people who have been around in this business for a long time. Because if you were trained in the 1990s and early 2000s, you never talked about compensation. It was really murky. There was a lot of commissions, so it wasn't even clear always exactly how much you're going to get paid on something. So advisors just avoided it as much as they possibly could. And so they didn't like talking about it. They were product-driven, not planning-driven. It's just with the way the profession's done it. I don't blame it on the people. It's just where the profession was. But people are coming into this now with a planning mindset, with transparency mindsets, right? That even just the fee changes and disclosures you come into a world that's much more forward on that today. That's really encouraging for the future to me. We're coming in with technology already in place. We're not having to learn about it after we've been in the business for 10 years. To me, all of those things are really good trends and really positive. Like I get excited when I think about this industry in 10 years, not disappointed. I'm definitely not one of those people that's like, oh, it's all getting... No, it's to me, we're better than we were two years ago. We're going to be better in another two years than we were. I think a lot of the stuff in the financial advising world and planning it that leads with way too much negativity and fear-driven aspects of things, right? You look at all the retirement stuff, it's all, oh, this retirement crisis, we're all going to run out of money. And I just think like, shit, has there ever been a better time to be a retiree than today? Like in the history of the world, <laughs> in any right. place, probably not. Like if I was going to pick at any point to be a 65-year-old that was going to retire, I would probably pick today over any other time period that's ever existed, right? right. Like, yeah. yeah, there's risks and things that might come up, but I can't think of a bit like Ubers are freaking awesome. Zooms with your grandkids. I don't know. I can't think of a better time. <laughs> so I'm very positive on that side of things. Yeah. And when I think about the future and the younger advisors, and I think about the, the diversity of, of the industry and the changing, you know, changing landscape and how. I think not necessarily just the diversity, the inclusion, but the people that I've ran into and the, how receptive they are to it. I would say that there's a difference in people's reception to diversity, inclusion. Like it's not just a buzzword in some circles now. Like it's actually some people are trying to see measurable change in the industry. It's one of those things like you can't put your finger like it's not like one person that's doing it. it's not just it's a collective group of people. And the, the best thing about it is some of the people don't even know each other. And then you get to meet them and you find out that they're on the same mission as you. And then you can lock arms with this person. And now that group continues to expand. And I think that you're one of those people. And there's groups of people like us that are linking up and are starting to make this, I think, making this real change happen in the industry. And that's the kind of stuff that I think about when I think about the future of financial planning and the future of our industry and the future of, for the consumers as well. Because I think that it's a, you know, Stephen Covey says it and people quote it all the time, but how many times have you seen a true win, win, win situation, right? Where the clients win, where the advisors win, where the community wins that you're helping, that respective community wins. Like it's a win, win, win. And I think this is one that we got to get right. How do you think we can get that right. I'm in the some of the same beliefs there as you that I do think it's improving. I mean, if you go to financial planning programs at colleges and universities, the students that want to be advisors and planners coming out of there today are way more representative of our total country, right? Mm -hmm. And more diverse 
backgrounds, ethnicities than the traditional advisor force is. Now, you can get negative on this stuff too, right? You look at women advisors, it hasn't really changed in like 25 years. and Everybody's had initiatives. And actually, I think somebody said to me, Jen Tarzi said that actually the percentage of client-facing women advisors is worse today than it was in 1998. So there are some things like that. You look at that and you're like, well, that sucks. <laughs> mm-hmm. But flip side is if I go down to the colleges today, it's not the case at all. The people coming into those programs, very, very good. Now, um, Kate Healy told me, flip side though, is that I think now 46% of financial services is female, which is the highest percentages of female in financial services as a total that it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have some people maybe that have self-selected or been pushed out of advisor roles or client roles. So I don't know which one it is in, in whole, but there's some improvements there in totality. I do think the conversation piece is important. And you brought this up, like it's more okay to have these conversations than it was before. And when it, you know, not that people ask me, but I'll give my advice on this, like be open to the conversations, but you have to have a little bit of courage to be wrong and to learn. And that also means you have to have the conversations in a context and with people that will give you that grace to learn. Mm -hmm. You know, I learn all the time. I tell everybody, like, I reserve the right to get smarter over time. I'm going to say something this year that I wish in five years I didn't think that way and I was wrong about. And I don't know what it is exactly, but there's lots of beliefs I have this year that are wrong. And I hopefully will learn different things and move forward from them. And, you know, that's about race. It's about gender. It's about diversity. And the terms change over time, too. So like Anna, who's on our team here at Carson, I ask her about this stuff. I asked Dr. David Roney, and everybody doesn't have the same view on everything either. And you have to understand that when you start thinking about diversity, right? You can't lump everyone together because they come from more diverse or different backgrounds than you. They're like, oh, well, everyone thinks the same way. Well, no, they have different mm-hmm. experiences. And how they feel about one situation can be different. So there's not black and white answers to all this either. And you have to accept that if you want to have these conversations. And it is a little bit, I think, fearful for people because a lot of people have this fear of what if I say the wrong thing? So then I just shouldn't engage in the conversation. And I think that's the wrong mentality. But you have to have courage to be wrong. And Mm -hmm. that's okay too. So that's probably my advice. And I think that's the more that we can make people feel okay about having conversations, even if we think that they're wrong in their views, but it's a safe place to have them, I think the better off we are long-term. I think open conversation is always better than closed conversation. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, like you were saying, I think one of the biggest things is, is having grace, right? You got to have grace with people. No one's getting all this right. If we had it all right, we wouldn't be having these conversations. And I think that it's those things that it's because of the conversations you have, it's because of the proximity to the people that you care about, that you get through some of the things that you get through. I think that is what excites me the most about the industry, the relationships, right? And I think that through the relationships is what opens up doors for other people. And when I say opens up doors, it opens up doors not to like go get new business, not to do that. It opens up relations to have more conversations because you've talked to someone that was different than you before. And the conversation actually wasn't that bad. And so after you get to get to know that, you're like, man, this, they're really similar to me. I didn't even think we had this many things in common. Next thing you know, now this is your friend. And now you have a friend that, that's green. And now you got another blue friend. And now you got a yellow friend. Now you got a green, you blue, and yellow friend. And you never even talked to green, blue, or yellow people before. And I use those colors on purpose. 
so we don't have to worry about that. But that's just where I think, like, if you think about it. So, you know, green, to- the green and blue makes me laugh because that's how um, a Schwab and TD refer to themselves today <laughs> in that merger. So it's the, <laughs> the green team and the blue team, right, Schwab? <laughs> that's <TD>. funny. <laughs> that is funny. Man. So, like, when you think about that, you got all this stuff. I think that people got to be okay with making mistakes. And if you make a mistake and you understand that you made a mistake and it was a sincere mistake, then people need to give you the grace to say, okay, then that's fine. That's learning. You're learning. Think about how, you know, when you were learning how to ride your bike, you fail. It's kind of a part of falling. I think it's part of learning, right? Everyone has that good scar from that lesson you learned, right? Like I got a lot of scars on my knees from falling on my bike or whatnot. You know what I mean? Scar tissue on my ankles from basketball, whatnot. What everybody has scars and they got things that happened and it's okay to mess up. It's okay to fall. It's okay to not get it right. As long as you're trying to get it right. With that, I wanted to kind of just go into the first thing you said, and this is just all things, Jamie, first thing you said when you got here, your most important thing, the most important thing is being a father. Talk about that. Let's talk about the kids. Yeah. Let's talk about, you know, I want to know a little bit about that. Not that I don't know. Cause I, yeah, but let's talk about it. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I have kids and uh, yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> that yeah, I've got three young kids, a girl, then two boys, and it's five, four and two right now. And actually, I, I missed my, I've been in quarantine and you know some of this too. And I haven't been talking about it a lot, but I'm mostly healed up now. But I had a breakthrough case of COVID and I've been living in this office for about 10 days. So my son's birthday was Monday and I didn't even get to celebrate it with them because I was in a quarantine. But the kids are my favorite part of life. And I tell people this too, that I don't know that kids make your life easier by any means, right? Like life probably (laughs) just gets harder. So there's this weird mix. Like I don't even know if people are fully happier totally with kids, but (laughs) the flip side is the best parts about kids are, you know, better than anything else that I ever did. That's really the, you know, my son who had his birthday, he loves the show Bluey, which if you've seen it, the little Australian dogs or whatever, I think they're Australian. Mm-hmm. You know, like he will laugh so hard at that. Like I don't laugh that hard at anything anymore. Like that's since died in me, it's gone, right? It's been 20 years since I've laughed that hard at anything. But like he laughs that hard. And like there's an amount of joy that then comes to me from him laughing that hard that I can't replicate with anything I personally can do anymore. You know, I ran a marathon two weeks ago. The level of happiness or self-satisfaction that comes to that doesn't even compare to just my son laughing at the show. Right. (laughs) But kids have changed a lot of things, right? Like I've changed my goals and the things that I want to do in life because now I have kids. I changed my behavior because of kids. They're a fundamental change point in my life. I used to run every single day and I ran for 3,004 consecutive days outside. And I didn't miss a day. I ran through broken ribs. I actually broke my leg during that. I had hernia surgery. I ran in Arizona when it was 115. I ran in blizzards here, ran in hurricanes, right? And eventually I walked away. And when I started that, I I didn't have a wife. I lived in an apartment with a roommate who I never saw. She traveled to for work. We didn't have a plant. We didn't have a pet. You fast forward eight and a half years later, I was married with a dog, a house, and uh, two kids at that point. And priorities change. And like, Mm -hmm. it's perfectly okay to not want to run every day anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I want to be healthy for grandkids. now. I want to be healthy for my kids. I don't need to run through another hernia surgery so I can say that my streak is alive. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I just walked away one day because my priorities had shifted. And when I travel now, it's a lot harder. I, I guess I'm entering year 11 minus 2020. 
of traveling, you know, a couple over a hundred nights a year. I don't want to do that anymore. I like being at home. I like mm-hmm. being around the kids. And I'm willing to give up an opportunity to go speak at an FPA conference now and say, hey, you should use this person instead. Like, they're way better. You know, Dr. Mm-hmm. Preston Cherry, you should use him. Don't use mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Preston could go travel for another five years. So I don't even yeah. know if he wants to. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's another group that'll come along now that are better at it anyway. So uh, have them do it. Mm-hmm. And those are all changed with kids. And I now think about how do I want to teach kids lessons about things like money in a big one, right? You know, I grew up with two parents who didn't go to college and did construction. My dad died when I was eight, which is a big part of my journey. And now I think about, I really just want to be here, right? Like mm-hmm. a great dad is one that's around and here and visible and teaching things and just being here. So all those things changed. And yeah, you know, I have my dog too, Baxter. I love him. He stuck with me through my COVID quarantine. So he's the only one, right, that truly loves me. He <laughs> <Yeah>. said, <laughs> so I got you, man. I'm here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> companionship there. He said, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> man, you know what? I'm sitting here listening to you talk about your kids. I'm like, man, I mean, just like what they do. And I've had similar experiences with my girls and my son. I had three girls and a boy. Man, they just change perspective. Things that you thought were important just aren't as important when you got those kids in. We were at a, my wife and I went to, we went somewhere the other, last weekend, I think we went and did something. Anyhow, we stayed overnight, we came back, we had babysitters overnight and came home and we're sitting there in the room on the vacation and on the trip and I'm like, I want to go home. She's like, what are you doing? I was like, I miss the kids. Like, they're not like, we got up, it's 9.30, they have, no one's come to the bedroom to mess because we're, we're not, yeah. like, no, no one's interrupted our sleep. I haven't had to do anything. I was like, this is too normal. Like, I need the kids around. And it's small moments like that, man. I think that really just missing on them, just loving on them. And that's awesome. man. I, I think I might have to do it like a dad's offense with just bring some guys on and have them talk about their kids, man. Cause I don't yeah. think we do that. Enough. So here is something that Ron did with his kids and that I'm going to adopt. We haven't started it yet. Mm-hmm. Maybe this year with my daughter, maybe we'll do it through December, but you know, Ron was very busy he was building a firm and, gone a lot. And he decided that as I mean, I should say him and Janie, his wife, Ron's still married to his high school sweetheart, and they've got three kids. And now Ron's a grandfather and he loves his grandkids. And that's changed him again, too. Like that's been the biggest I've known Ron for 11 years. And I'll tell you, grandkids changed him more than anything else that I've ever seen. (laughs) So, you know, grandparents can attest to that, right? Like grandkids change them too. But he would make sure that him and Jeannie both get a day with one kid, right, every year, right, where they go do just a day with the one kid. And they would do like staycations in Omaha and actually go spend a night in a hotel with the kid, right, Mm -hmm. just them and that kid. So if you Mm -hmm. get three kids, that becomes six days a year. But I think about that. I'm like, you know, that's really important. So our youngest child, who's two, Wesley, is like a total terror. He's terrible. The first two are amazing. (laughs) He's terrible. And he's going to hear all these recordings when he's older and he's saying he's terrible. But he's not. When I'm alone with him, he's fantastic. But when Mm -hmm. I put all three of them together, Mm -hmm. he's like wild and crazy and it's too much. And you're like, come on, Wesley. But then when I just spend time just with him, I'm like, this is great. And he's Mm -hmm. like super cuddly and, you know, taking that time to just be present and to be there, go do something fun. You don't need to stay at a hotel. But I do think that my wife and I have talked about that, that we want to do that every year is that we take those six days. So each one of us gets a full day with the one kid to go just do stuff. We'd go to a museum 
go painting, go on a hike, whatever it is, and just be present with that one kid because together the dynamics are all different, right? Like, as you know, like when you've got all the kids and you and your wife, there's a lot going on and you don't just get to be present one-on-one. And so I think that's a really cool thing to just actually sit down as a family and know that you're going to do it. And then we also adopted already the Christmas time with our other, I guess, what's that? My nieces and nephews, their cousins. We let the kids pick a charity and we give to it. My daughter picked, I think, St. Jude's because the children's hospital. And mm-hmm. then my son's picked like a wildlife thing last year. The two-year-old barely understood, but he still understood that there's animals. <laughs> and so we gave to those. And so we're going to do that again this year, too. I think both of those have been good, good things to adopt because otherwise you might just keep running forward and, uh, you know, kids will be 15 and you won't have figured out anything to do yet. So building some of those things purposefully into your life is important. Absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. I actually like the one day, you know, one day a year, take them on overnight trip. The other day uh, we had power was out at the house, so there's no daycare. So it was interesting because, you know, I had to cancel some appointments and whatnot. And it was just me and my daughter. She's 19. We're still counting months. Jesus. She's <laughs> 21 months old. Like three more months and we're over with this. But yeah, she's 21 <laughs> months older than me. Like that, like, today, she's 21 months old, actually. So anyhow, no daycare because of the power outage. And so her and I got to spend some hours together with none of the other kids here because they were all, you know, everybody else went to school and everything. And I just got to hang out with her. And that was, it was such a fun fun time because we didn't even have tv it was dad entertainment you know so it was such a good time and thinking about spending that time because they grow up so fast right you got older kids now so you you know that your two-year-old won't always be two and the cute stuff that they do when they're that age they stop the way that they pronounce words and they say things wrong they say it all cute and then they grow up and they don't do that anymore so just being able to have those days like that where you can really really take that in i think that's great man you know what jamie man this has been awesome and as you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast you know, where we're changing the complexion of wealth. And what I always like to do when we're wrapping up with my guests is I always ask them, what pieces of advice would you have for the community? What pieces of advice would you kind of say? Like, you know what? This is your advice. It's a piece of advice. I guess this works for any community too. I'll give two pieces of advice. One is the one that people have asked me a couple of times recently. Like, what advice would I give my younger self? And I think that's applicable to everybody because it's advice that you would take personally. And that is don't put self-limitations right on you. When I was younger, and I'll use a sports piece, it didn't only apply there. You know, I swam with Michael Phelps. We grew up together. We're a month apart in age. I swam under Bob Bowman, who I think has been four-time now Olympic head coach. And I had other coaches too that were fantastic and, you know, all helped me in different ways. And I had a couple of coaches that believed that I could be an Olympic swimmer. I didn't ever get all that close. I was an okay swimmer. I swam on scholarship in college, but I never believed that. I didn't believe that I was a good enough athlete to accomplish any of those things. I didn't realize until after I was done with college and I actually got, you know, I was in law school and playing other sports that I actually realized, you know what? I'm not the most talented swimmer of all time, but coaches are also right. You could have been. There's a level of dedication, just learning about all the different aspects, like how to eat, how to train, how to sleep, not going out drinking two days before a meet and a practice. Mm-hmm. And I literally ate cheeseburgers and drank like a Coke with it on a pool deck before racing before. Of 
course I was not optimizing my <laughs> skill set at that point. And I just realized that like I mentally didn't believe in myself and what I was capable of. And it applied in other areas, right? It applied in the business world where like when you first enter into a profession or wherever you are in life, you're putting some limitation. Like I run into this all the time. People are like, well, I can't be a CEO, like blah, blah, blah. You know, absolutely you can, mm-hmm. right? And part of it is I've learned over time that like a lot of people kind of suck. And like, <laughs> you were like, well, <laughs> I was like, you can be a CEO. Of course you can. I've met CEOs that I'm not impressed with at all. And that's allowed me to over time just start removing those beliefs. I see it when people apply to jobs, when they think about the impact they can make in the world. Do not put limitations on yourself. That is most of the limitations that are out there are self-imposed. So as much as you can, if you say, I can't do something or I can't have a bigger impact, it's likely because you're putting that limitation on yourself, not because it's actually truly out there. There are real limitations in life, but I think most of the ones that hold us back are self-imposed. And so I think that's a big thing for anyone. The second thing actually came from George Bush this year, and it's stuck with me since he said it, which is if you want to be a real leader, you've got to lead with a positive mindset. That this whole idea of, you know, doom and gloom or talking about all things that are wrong, you're not going to be a leader that way. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just really interesting to me because I'm like, you know what? He actually said a couple of things at Excel that resonated with me. And that was one of them. And I've tried to, like, if you're always negative and doom and gloom for your teams, it's going to weigh on other people. It it projects onto them. And then what are we going to do? We're going to put limiting beliefs on ourselves. (laughs) And we're going to focus on the negative and not the positive. And there's a lot of positives to focus on, right? As I said before, you asked me, would I rather be alive at any other time in history? Probably not. This would be it. We have the longest life expectancy ever now. We have the coolest technology ever. We probably have more opportunities than ever before. We can come up with cures to diseases in records amount of time. I mean, it's a truly amazing time to be alive, to be in this profession. And I also think, I mean, look at people who have impacts on the world today. It's amazing, right? I mean, you look at people like Elon Musk and Oprah and actually Dwayne The Rock Johnson, I think is an amazing one too, right? Like he was Mm -hmm. a University of Miami football player who got injured and is now one of the most famous and influential people in the world, right? Like, (laughs) that's pretty cool. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. (laughs) Absolutely, man. I think about that. Like I think about him and Michael Strait. You know, he's a good football player, but I think he's done his career after football has been much better than it was ever when he was in football. Man, well, Jamie, I just wanted to you know, wrap all this up and say, man, thank you so much, not only for coming on, but for your friendship, man, and for everything that you're doing in the industry. I think the world of you, I think you're a great guy. And also thank you for you as a friend. So I thank you for that and everything that you shared with us today. Thank you. You know, keep on changing that complexion of wealth. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Absolutely. If people want to get more of Jamie Hopkins, where can they get you? Where, where can they find you? What social medias are you active on? I'm most active on Twitter still today. So that's at retirement risks. I do have a website, jamiehopkins.com, but it's, you know, articles and things that I, on retirement planning mostly. Yeah, those are the best two ways to get in touch with me. But on Twitter, I'll actually reply back to you. And you can watch my videos where I draw on pieces of white paper. And that's pretty much my <laughs> content nowadays. Hey, it's, you know what? It's effective because I watch all those white paper videos. Oh, Jamie got some white. Let's see what's going on. I watch all of them. So, <laughs> so if you see the white paper come up on Jamie's Twitter, make sure you watch that video. 
Once again, thank you, man. And as everyone knows, this is the Minority Money Podcast, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. I'm the host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly. Until next time. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast, so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here, and until next time.